Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote Is this something you've experienced before you get really excited about a project where you want to go beyond consultation and you're planning things out, you're figuring it out and you take your ideas, your process ideas to, I don't know, it might be your board or your manager or a minister and you just get shut down. And you get told, no, we can't do that. It's too expensive. There's far too many risks of it just blowing up. No, what we want you to do is come up with a couple of proposals and go out for consultation like we usually do. It's a pretty common situation and it's a really frustrating one. And that's why I'm excited for today's guest on the show because she has a really powerful message that going beyond consultation is actually the cost-effective option. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. But before we get into that, I just want to say thanks to everybody who's got in touch in the last week or so with your reactions to the show. And um, we've had a couple of people asking when more episodes are coming out. So at the moment, we're aiming for one episode every two weeks, releasing on a Wednesday. One other thing I want to announce is a chance for you to win a t-shirt if you want to be the first person to leave a voice message for the show. Because really the podcast is all about helping you to do more than tick the box of consultation. And I know there are a lot of challenges that you face with this. So if you're facing something at the moment which is really frustrating you as you try to go beyond consultation, go to businesslab.co.nz slash podcast and somewhere there on the page there's a button where you can leave a voice message for the show. Uh, I'd love to hear from you and we can play it to a future guest, one that's appropriate and see what what their suggestion is for you. So, on to today's guest. She is the author of several books. She's the former CEO of the Ministry for Women here in New Zealand. And she says now she's got what she describes as a portfolio career. So, we explore a little bit what on earth that actually means. But the focus of our episode is on a co-design process she has been leading on the National Action Plan for Community Governments. And what I didn't realize is that over half a million New Zealanders, I mean, that's 10% of our population pretty much, are involved in community governance in some kind of way. But they don't get a huge amount of support and there are a lot of systemic barriers that can stop you from doing a really good job on a community governance role. So our guest today walks us through the process that they used. You'll learn a lot about how to get a co-design process started and how to convince others that it's actually far more cost effective than ticking the box of consultation. So I'm really excited for this episode. Let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Joe Cripp. As a way of kind of starting things off, Joe, you've got this portfolio career and you, you know, you've got three aspects of that, but how do you describe your work 
when you're at the pub or meeting someone for a cup of coffee for the first time? Yeah, well, I can say when I first stepped into this portfolio world, that's what I, was, what I struggled with the most. Like, what do you call yourself? And I actually got coaching to help me because when you're in a job with a, like a business card, you've kind of got a personality or an identity that's linked to that business card. Like I'm the chief executive of the Ministry for Women. It's code Paula, you know exactly mm. what I am, what box I fit in. And then if I came and said to you, well, you know, we're having our glass of Chardonnay, and I say, well, I have a portfolio career. That means nothing. There's no box. And that's often what we try and do when we're trying to understand each other is decode each other's language. So I mm -hmm. often, it depends on who I'm talking to about how I would pitch myself. So in some circumstances, I would say I am uh, a director. I have a portfolio of directorships and do consulting. You can imagine what environments I would say to that. Yeah, yeah. And then in other ones, I say, well, there's three things I'm really passionate about. You know, the equity, the capability of the NGO sector and diversity. And I really uh, look for projects to focus on that. So I would pitch my answer to it depending on who is in front of me so that it would connect with them and be, make real sense to them. So I'm four years into my portfolio career and I think it's more known now. I don't think if you were stepping into one today, it would be seen as such a radical departure. Mm. More and more people have three or four income streams. You know, the side hustle is quite an established and maybe even if you haven't got one, there's something slightly wrong with you as well. I think it really is a piece. It just shows how much our work whether we like it or not, uh, defines us. And so I just had to run a few stories in my head depending on who I was uh, in front of. Take us back then four years, you're working as the CEO for Ministry for Women on the fast track in the public sector. Tell us about you know, making the leap into the portfolio career. Well, everyone said it was such a brave choice, but in my mind, it wasn't. I had, if you look at all my roles, they're very value-based. I was always working on issues that really mattered to me. And the next step, logically, in a management career or a leadership career in the public service would have been a large operational role in somewhere like the IRD. And it didn't really mm. fit with my value set. I also had young children and it, work needed to be immensely meaningful um, and important to me if I was going to trade off time with them. And I think I've written about it quite widely. I had a large tango with quite serious cancer. So all this come together to go, listen, you're, you know, every work day matters and you have to be working on something you really care about. And I'm, I think I've got some skills that I could offer. Why don't I go and create the job for myself rather than waiting for somebody else to, to offer me one that fits because I don't think it's going to ever appear. And mm. so I did. And so in my head, it wasn't in the least bit brave. It was a very <laughs> pragmatic decision. In fact, I think it would be braver to try and stay and fit myself into somebody else's mold. I just don't think I would have been a very effective leader or a very happy person. Yeah, that's a nice way of totally flipping that one on its head, Joe. And then, as you've mentioned, you've got three focus areas. So around the NGO sector, gender diversity and inclusion, and then exploring the future of work. How did you decide on those three? they were probably decided 20 or 30 years ago because there's threads and I guess if we all look back at through our careers there's probably threads and at some stage where we're closer to one thread than the other and they've always been there I think particularly they all lend themselves to each other being in the ministry for women I was obviously interested in gender equality but my master's thesis was in feminist geography 25 years ago I already was working on those issues whether I liked it or not so 
I just think it's been very circular. What I get to do now is to put them down as a business mm. as opposed to something you sort of was in the background and they overtly drive my business as opposed to me trying to fit myself into something else where my values aligned. And a lot of the people listening to this are probably in an existing organization, whether it's central government, local government, community, or even a business. And, you know, they've got a boss who says, this is what you're going to work on this month. So Joe, how do you decide what you do with your day? I think that's a great question because in theory, I am my boss. And I would in no way say that a portfolio career is for everyone. And I don't think there's ever the right role. We're always trading off something. So where you are working in an organization, you get the ability to work neatly with others. You get probably clarity about the way forward. You probably have some resources at your disposal potentially. And you've got the security of knowing what's coming up maybe in a week's time or even the sense of security. So for me, I've traded that off and I have nobody telling me to do anything. But I'm a fairly structured and planned person. So I start with a, a plan and some ambition at the beginning of each year. I do set myself a financial goal. I am running a business. There are kids to feed and mortgages to pay. But then I also have areas where I'm working in and delivering. And then there's areas I'm developing. So say, for instance, at the moment, I've got a book that's about to be released in a couple of weeks' time. That was a developing project last year. And I've got some developing projects this year, so I'm continually investing. And I really spent a lot of time working out who potentially am I aligned with in terms of who needs my skills or where could mm. I make myself useful or where could I make the most impact and will introduce myself to that space. As you do that, you build uh, connections, you build webs and networks, and then the work proactively starts coming to you. Jo, she's good at facilitating. She's very, very good at working through and helping you get practical actions done on your diversity plan. You know, you start to build a reputation around some things that are good and your business uh, then becomes easier. I'd say sort of year three and four, it becomes even more easier than mm. uh, perhaps in those first two years where you're really planning and making yourself known to others. So you're planting seeds in the first year yeah. or two and then you're watering and sometimes them and sometimes they come forgetting. Really quickly and then sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's two years later. And I always set myself the goal that I wouldn't take work for the sake of taking work. Um, mm. I would take work because I passionately believed in it. Because if I do that, I know I'll do a better job and I'll be much more engaged and much more useful to the client. And so far, so good. That is a very privileged uh, position to be mm. in. It's something that I guess is aspirational. And increasingly, particularly through COVID, I'm working uh, much more in Australia and globally mainly because the barriers to travel have gone, whereas somebody wouldn't even think about you as a consultant in a government agency in Australia because I'd have to fly you over. No, yeah. Now no one's going into the building anyway, so yeah. it doesn't matter where you are located and you actually got a skill set that's useful. So in some ways we can start to think about as much as COVID is creating havoc, perhaps we can think about things differently and try and position ourselves differently and maybe new opportunities arise from that. That's inspirational to think people talk about New Zealand Inc and what New Zealand's offering to the world. Well, actually you're able to offer your brain to the world now much more yeah. easily than you could have before. Yeah. It was fascinating. I did a pre-record for an innovation conference in Canada 
and it played while I was asleep, basically. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of action on my social media, and I went, what's, where's all this coming from? And then I remembered that, of course, they thought I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and so we really should hold our heads high, because we do know stuff, and we do have experience, and we are as, as good, if not better, and those skills will be realized, because that tyranny of distance is gone now. It mm. really has. It's mm. quite acceptable to zoom into a meeting in London, so why wouldn't we just go for it? Tomorrow night, I'm tuning into the first training session for a facilitation tool, and we've got people from Singapore. The host is based in Portugal. We've got some people in the UK, Australia. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. It makes the world incredibly small, but imagine the conversations we can have and the access we can have to other people's expertise as well. We might have been expected to visit people, but now we can ask for 30 minutes on Zoom and we will mm. get it. It's a mindset change now, isn't it? So Joe, that's really nice as a bit of an intro for people listening on your quite diverse work that you've got. I wanted to try and dive into a couple of things then in more detail with you today. For those people who are listening who like the, the practical, how do I make it happen stuff? And especially thinking this podcast is about moving people beyond just ticking the box of consultations. Mm. One of the first ways that I learned about your work was you wrote a report a couple of years ago, Governing for Good. And I think you've really built on what you're doing now, which is the National Action Plan for Community Governance with the Centre for Social Impact New Zealand. So can you give us a little bit of the backstory from your perspective as to how that work came about? When I looked back at it, I had my first governance role straight out of university when I'd done my master's thesis looking at domestic violence in Samoan communities and then got a government policy job that seemed very removed from the reality of communities. Mm. So I volunteered for my local women's refuge. The structure then was you automatically went on the collective and the collective was the governing body. And so automatically you're an employer, automatically you had uh, complex relationships with government funders and a whole raft of things. And I can remember sitting there at the meetings going, what on earth is happening? And progressively, I guess my mahi aroha or my volunteering has been in that governance space, you know, enjoying the strategy space, actually enjoying some of the compliance. Can't believe I actually said that. But, you know, that's <laughs> kind of where I thought I could add the most value. So 20 years of working on and with the boards of community organisations, what I came to appreciate was there's about half a million of us who volunteer in some sort of governance roles in our communities and very few of us have uh, formal training or any help really to get us um, up and running. And why would we know how to govern an organisation and what's expected? There's very little there uh, to help us do that. But yet when we put our hands up to be on that committee or we sign on to the trust board, we've got huge responsibilities under all sorts of legislation, all sorts of stewardship that we probably aren't even aware of. So it was a real sense of wanting to get in behind all those amazing New Zealanders who volunteer on boards. But I'd also seen where governance goes bad and what it can mean for communities if good decisions aren't made or organisations aren't viable or the board takes too much energy out of the organisation, like managing mm. the board becomes the staff's full-time and all these sort of things. So there was a sense that what if we can really create something at a systems level that is there to support what are amazing people doing amazing jobs often and with basically no support. Yeah. And imagine what would happen if they weren't there and what a, an amazing, incredibly important part of the fabric of our society. 
is part of my portfolio. I mentioned that I always had a development piece. I have a research background with a PhD, so I put it to good use and did a piece of qualitative research around the governance of social service organisations, those that are providing services to some of the most vulnerable communities and found not surprisingly that many of them were struggling with governance, even struggling to get enough people on boards and then to get the skill sets that they probably needed to be able to negotiate proper contracts with the government agencies or manage their compliance and accountability so that they stayed funded. And this just seemed like madness, basically. So I started having conversations and not surprisingly, there were a number of other leaders in the community who had similar experiences. They could see that there was a very piecemeal or limited provision of support and basically accumulated in, well, let's do something about it again at that systems level and let's do it so it's completely connected and driven by community insight and let's take it to scale. And so that's quite an ambitious project, but as you can see, there's a document now and we'll be hopefully rolling out a whole lot of actions that have been identified by exactly the people who will be using them. So it's quite an exciting large-scale community-driven project done completely through a coalition of the willing. So there's a couple of points to pick up on in there. One, you started this from your experience as a board member and you talked about feeling a bit disconnected in a public sector role from the communities that you were trying to serve, which Mm. can be quite common sometimes. Mm. And I love that term you use, mahi aroha. So for the non-New Zealanders listening, mahi, aroha, those are Māori kupu, Māori words. Mahi means work and aroha, love. So what a, work for the love of it. Or work that gives love. It's a nice way of phrasing volunteer work. And then you talked about the challenges with community governance from your own experience, which you felt. For you, the personal genesis for the National Action Plan for Community Governance. Now, maybe take a, a step back. So there's this idea to do something that's systems level, that's community driven to improve community governance, right? You've got this idea, then what happened to actually get quite a large project and process underway? Mm. How did it start? There needed to be quite a few pieces of the jigsaw coming together, sort of as the backbone to the project. And the first one was pulling together a steering group that would have some sort of stewardship or actually they would say they're kaitiaki, which is that same concept of stewardship. There was three of us that connected very quickly and we spread out and invited. And so we've got at the moment 12 amazing people who are are part of the steering group who are very vested in its success and I guess that's that shared sense of ownership of the project on behalf of community. So having a group of leaders I think who are vested, who share the same vision was incredibly important. Joe, how did you choose those people? Well they kind of chose themselves as well if that makes sense so they'd been very vocal about in the in community governance or were natural leaders or were when we just started talking about this had said yes I'm in. There's a few people we went to and said your skills are really important Uh, are you interested and they went gosh yes so it was a mixture of just a natural coalescing and an invitation for people who had specific skill sets or specific communities or specific perspectives because we needed that diversity Mm. of the community sector around the steering group. So you form the steering group? Yeah, 12 people who are determined to make something happen and it's going to happen. I think the next most important piece was that the project had a backbone. So it had a home 
and that was the center for social impact under Monica Briggs's leadership. She could see that this, with their mandate around uh, strengthening systems and infrastructure in the community sector and got in behind it because you need an email address. There's all these yeah. logistics around it. You need a website where you can put things. Administration is incredibly important when you're working at such a scale and there's so many people involved. There has to be a backbone. And they volunteered and with Foundation North's funding, resourced them to basically be the backbone. So we had this solid spine, a steering group. And then I guess we just drove it from there. The next thing we needed was a methodology. How do we capture and actually turn the ambition into tangible actions that can be delivered? And as a steering group, we came up with, based on all our experience, the research to date, they were the areas we needed to focus on. The boards were well cheered. The boards were diverse. The boards had the basic skills like financial literacy. Mm. So that we basically built co-designed sprints around each of those six po, And we added a seventh, which was a po in te ao Māori, which means that the specific pieces about governance in a Māori organisation that needed to be captured as well. So your group of 12 people decided yeah. on the, the six and then eventually the seven po. So then when you went out to the community and you said, hey, we want to run a co-design sprint with you around each of these areas, did you get any sort of frustration or pushback from people saying, well, why wasn't I involved in deciding what those areas were? Because the, those areas had been involved and we didn't make them up. They were basically based on a survey of all the charity services with a combination of a, hundreds of years of community governance. And we did test them and we were really open for pushback. If we'd totally mm. missed the boat, we would have changed it. But instead, we got 150 volunteers in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so that, that told you, yeah, we're on the right, right track. So I think that was the validation. And at every stage, yeah. we were prepared to adapt. If we hadn't got it right, if it wasn't hitting the cord, we would know. But instead, we got a complete validation going. I completely agree. Boards need to have the basic skills and they don't. Boards need to be well cheered and they're not. So people self-selected mm. around the issues they particularly were interested in. And we created teams to sprint and we planned them all to be face to face. And then COVID came and we took them all online. So each of the sprints for two days, two days on Zoom. Imagine that. Two days straight. Yeah. Wow. And they were amazing sessions. We thought we were pushing people to do it. And of course, we surveyed people afterwards anonymously every time to go, did we get it right? And they said, no, we're tired. But by gosh, we're energized and excited. And I was lucky enough to facilitate every single one of the sprints. And it was an easy job because people were so engaged. What it says to me is that we can have the best ideas about generating change, but each change has its time. This, and this, this was the time. It was getting validated. It was getting energy. And mm. it still has. And so I think there's a lesson to us about reading the room or reading the sector about when something has got its time it'll fly. And maybe if it hasn't quite, maybe it's not its time yet. So mm. we've continually got that feedback. Again, when we launched, basically all the actions that came out of the sprints are what has formed the National Action Plan. And we launched it about two weeks ago. And again, we had 500 people register and another 120 join us on Facebook. So that's a huge event in the community sector just by mm. sheer numbers. This is working because we all want it to. So you run these sprints for two days, you then sort of pull people's insights into a report to share what the community that you're working with has come up with. And now that's going to be the basis for some future funding around the yes. ideas that, that came through. 
we it. took every action that was produced in a sprint. Most sprints produced either two or three and created them into the national action plan. And that is currently being considered by the combined community trusts of New Zealand. Some of the actions are happening individually because they've got backing from other areas. And we're starting to talk with officials about the second phase of the actions. We split mm. them in half and about how government might be part of the process as well. The aim is as soon as we get funding, we understand the priorities, like which ones are actions we should move fastest on and we'll appoint project managers so that you've actually got people whose job it is to put it in place. I mean, that's the lesson as well. If we want to work by committee and squeeze it in around our real jobs, we probably won't get the change we want. Mm. If we really want it, we have to resource it, which means we actually have to make it somebody's job to initiate these actions so that we can all benefit from that. And through the sprint process, how did you manage the the sheer number of ideas that might have been coming through? Because I'd say, you know, you've got 20 odd people in the room with a lot of experience that have all sorts of things pinging around in their head. How did you manage that? How much do you know about how a sprint process works? It basically starts with a question. One of them was, how can we ensure the boards of all community organisations are well chaired? Take that one as an example. And it basically goes through a process where first we create personas. So these are examples of chairs. We had somebody who aspired to be a chair but didn't want to put his hand up because he didn't really know Mm. what he wanted to. Another one who'd been thrust into the role and doesn't really know what to do and is really uncomfortable. We've got somebody who's a long-time chair who perhaps needs to move on or change their practice. So we created different Mm. uh, personas and we made them alive because we needed to drive our actions to be grounded in the actual reality of who we were trying to serve. And then we went through a process of very structured brainstorming in terms of if these are each of the people we are here to serve, what will work? And then basically through a sprint process, it's a competition of ideas, if that makes sense. So you continually refine and basically the ideas do get knocked out. We even have challenge groups coming in. So a bit like a shark tank, sort of dragon's (laughs) den. And they'll test the ideas. And through that process, the sort of the best ideas filtered to the top and only end up usually with one or two really strong ideas that Mm. have gone through quite a rigorous process to make it out the other end. There were, as you can imagine, hundreds of ideas that were floated. The ones that made it through that got the most backing were the most likely to make the difference for Mm. our personas. So it's Mm. really strong. Not only have you got community people designing for community people, you've got a co-design sprint, which drives all the rigor in the process as well. I personally have loved using personas and processes like that because it then means people can divorce themselves from it a little bit and and they don't have to only speak from their own experience. We knew that many of us who were in the room was because we actually were probably quite competent governors Mm. or had some confidence in that area. So we weren't developing these actions for ourselves. We weren't new governors. And imagine stepping into a chair role for the first time. That's who we needed to support. Persona drives you to walk in other people's shoes, not just design things that suit you. But a rigor. As I say, we used challenge teams. So even more people joined us to black hat the ideas and really test them because what we wanted at the end was ideas that were the most powerful ideas to come through. You say black hat, you might need to explain what you mean by that. Black hat. So the challenge's jobs were really to go, is this idea feasible? Like to ask really hard questions in terms of, will this work for my communities? Or what have you forgotten? Have you thought about? They were asking very challenging 
questions, if that makes sense. It's a, a phrase related to De Bono's hats, where you could ask questions that are creative and build on, but we ask them to come in and, and pull the idea apart, basically, mm. so that we knew that it, all the ideas were really tested and had to work hard to make it out the other end. And for people listening, we'll include a note in the show notes. That's Edward De Bono, who's written about the six thinking hats, different coloured hats equate to different ways of thinking about something that you're working on. The black hat is, what are the challenges? So Joe, I think that's given us a really good sort of perspective of you know, what you were trying to achieve with the process and how you did it. You're also releasing a report, Sprinting for Good. So mm. what's, what's your reasoning for doing that? There was a lot of interest in the actual actions that we created as part of the action plan. And, but there was also an awful lot of interest in how we did it in that we used and took a sprint process and adapted it for community use and we adapted it for social good. Now our co-design and sprinting are used an awful lot in design, the creation of new products. They're used in software development through agile development. But increasingly, we're learning that these techniques are really good for dealing with complex problems that a lot of people need to come together to work on. But it creates a framework for action. I've sat in many committees where every time we seem to renegotiate, you just spend so much time not making progress. Mm. So we were really looking for a methodology. And I did a lot of research, um, a lot of conversations and a lot of talking to adapt the methodology and because we've tested it so much, we've run seven of them. That's nearly, you know, 11,000 hours of people's time. Yeah. And we've had so much survey feedback and we adapted it each time we went. We learned as we went that it made sense to write up the process as in what we did, how we did it, why we did it, what we learned, what we adapted, what we wouldn't do again. But also as part of the Sprinting for Good uh, document, we've included all the templates that we used, all the online we used an online pdf process everything we used in the project is there so it's a it's a toolkit if anybody is interested in thinking about using co-design or some of these methodologies and why i think it is such a powerful methodology is that it is in a way efficient it's respectful of volunteers time but also is a very democratic process there is a very inclusive process because every voice matters there's no hierarchy in a sprint it's all about the ideas and it's often in very small group work. It's using a process. If you were developing services, you can very easily have board members who have perceived power or management who have perceived power working alongside those who you serve in a team approach. And the co-design allows for those sort of power imbalances. They're gone basically in the process. We think it's a really powerful tool for creating meaningful solutions. It was a great frustration in government that we would create the perfect policy and then go and consult. And it was often created by a whole lot of people who'd never experienced the issue. I did a lot of work when I was at the Children's Commission on Child Poverty and we're working with officials who've never had missed a meal. How on earth could you know if your actions were meaningful if you've never lived in grinding poverty? So what if we could actually create policy or create strategy or create services using this where those who you were serving were in the room and personas drive the process as opposed mm. to our assumptions. And, it's, and then you don't need to have these long expensive consultation processes 
which aren't really meaningful when people yeah. with power are standing up the front and saying, we think this is the answer and it's your job to tell them that it's not. Mm. It seems like the wrong dynamic. So as you can see, I'm quite passionate about some of these tools. If they're done, I put the caveat, if they're done properly with respect and follow the principles of co-design, which is shared power, mm. the actual decision and actions are made in the sprint together. If we're prepared to do that, we will get much better outcomes for everybody and we'll do it far more resource efficiently on every level in terms of people's time, resources, travel, money, everything. So mm. we wanted to share, we actually can collaborate more effectively if we use some of these tools. I love, Joe, that you bring up that point about it being more resource efficient, because I think a lot of people assume the opposite. They go, oh, co-design, that sounds more intensive than consultation. So no, we won't do that. Yeah. yeah, but think about how many officials are sent around the country and setting up bespoke meetings, do you know, mm. and how much travel and how much inefficiency is involved, how many people are not involved in the room, or just even think about consultation from that a paper is put up and community organisations have to spend their own time making a submission and mm. all those hours aren't counted as cost, are they? Mm. But they are. So, you know, if I was a community organization, I'd much rather be in a co-design process than having to write a submission on a long, complex policy piece or a draft bill that probably will be ignored anyway. So, Joe, imagine I'm an official senior advisor in central government. I've got this project that I'm leading I'm trying to decide the process that I'm going to use, if it's consultation or more of a co-design process. What advice would you give to that person about where to start? Um, the first thing I would say is understand your authorising environment or your mandate. Do you have a mandate to really work with those who you're serving? And in some instances, the answer will be yes, and in some it won't be. So, and really understand what's on the table and what's off the table and if you are going to enter into any kind of process, know where the decision rights are. So there's a piece of integrity mm -hmm. there. There is no point in going into a co-design if you already know the answer has to be X, Y, yeah. or Z. So getting a sense of where the appetite is for creating answers or actions or how much leeway you've got to problem solve in your policy space. And then go and talk to people who've done it. Yeah, so get, mm -hmm. get your mandate, a real mandate, Otherwise, you're just you're potentially operating without integrity and, and you're basically then potentially damaging your and your department's rep reputation if you're offering co-design, but actually there's nothing on the table. So get that worked through. And then the actual co-design process shouldn't be that difficult. There are people who can help you, but go and talk to a whole lot of people read our fabulous report, if you, <laughs> which will be available for free and make connections perhaps to those who've done co-design or join in a co-design and understand what it feels like and how it will run. And there'll be lots of them run all across the country in all sorts of forms. Or even have a crack internally, try internally, mm -hmm. do it with your colleagues as a problem-solving exercise before you take it and include external stakeholders. Mm -hmm. uh, a day, you probably do need a day, two, we found two was better, but it didn't really take both days. It took about two and two-thirds of a day to get really robust actions on a complex issue. So that's a pretty good return for an investment of that time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, nice. I guess the theme I heard in there was 
start small. So if you're a bit nervous about doing it, find a way that you can learn in a much lower risk environment. And for me personally, the way I first started to learn was a startup weekend. I had to give up my weekend, but the amount that I learned from being part of that process yeah, and the people that I met and the resources I gained from that really set me off on being able to learn a whole lot more. Hey, Joe, look, thank you so much for walking us through that. I had a whole bunch of other topics that I wanted to talk to you about, but we ended up just going deep into that one. And I think that was really valuable to unpack, you know, what did the process actually look like and what were the benefits and what are some of the things you need to think about at the start? But look, I, I do want to point out a couple of things to people listening because you're, you're also an author. You've got three books that I am aware of. The first one is Being Accountable. Can you tell us a little bit, little bit about that? That was about your PhD thesis a few years ago. Yes, Being Accountable is the unacademic write-up of my PhD thesis. No one should read a PhD thesis if no. they do not have to. <laughs> and my PhD thesis looked at the government community sector contracting relationship from the perspective of the community sector in terms of who we think we're accountable for and how that matches back to government's assumptions. And basically shows nobody will be surprised um, a mismatch, but also what we do to, to address it. So it was quite a practical uh, approach to contracting, which has been taken up a number of times in high trust contract environments, as you can imagine. Nice. So that's the book for people in central government who are trying to partner with the community sector. And then we've mm -hmm. got Don't Worry About the Robots, How to Survive and Thrive in the New World of Work. Can you tell us about that? So that came out of my experience of being asked a million times about whether I was, mad, how mad I was. Basically, people were trying to ask me, how are we going to make any money doing this portfolio thing? I even had somebody after about three months take me out for coffee and tell me that my little folly should be over and I should get a real job quickly. <laughs> so this is actually looking at the world of work and unpicking it. And we spoke to some amazing leaders as part of that project and how they thought about work and how they were planning to be relevant and impactful in 10 years time. And yeah. I think it's an incredibly important thing to be thinking about and not waiting for the future of work to happen. We should really be proactively thinking about what we want from work. Mm. So it's a call to arms to go, don't assume what you're doing today is what you'll be doing tomorrow is what you'll be doing in a year's time and have a good think about what you really want to do and start investing in that longer term future. Mm, so it's a bit of a manual for people who are wanting to design their own career rather than having it just dropped on them. Yeah. But how many people assume they're going to be doing the same job and that, that may not be an option they have, whether they proactively choose to move or whether unfortunately they are moved on. So, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of us have learned that from COVID, my work looks very different now from what it did a year ago. Yes. And sounds like yours does too. Yes. And, <laughs> and then you're just about to release a third book with Rachel Petero, Take Your Space. So can you tell us about that? It'll be available in the first week of October. The way it came about is that Rachel and I had been to a very fancy woman in leadership event and we so much great information was shared about how to get ahead but the only people that could attend that event were people who were women or men who were able to take the day off or their employer mm. had paid for them to go. And so much information is shared that needs to be shared and needs to be shared widely. So we went and asked 14 fabulous women what they would say if they were in these events and we turned it into a book and it, it covers things like how to get a pay rise, how to get promoted, 
how to deal with that boss that's harassing you, how to take care of yourself, how not to get talked over, all the things that can really be annoying in the workplace and it's incredibly practical. My favorite bit, I wish I'd known some of this, was the step-by-step analysis we did with all our women about how they got pay rises. And Mm. I just think we really need these tools. We really all need this support in this environment. So it's all about encouraging women and men who care about women. And it's just as much for men, but it's really about taking your own space. Absolutely practical tips from amazing women, global women, half are from New Zealand and half from around the world who generously shared all their cunning tactics and tips about getting ahead. Mm, nice. So sounds relevant no matter who you are or where you come from. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I'd known a lot of it <laughs> 10, <laughs> yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah, that's often the way. And of course, people can find you, you write on stuff.co.nz as yes. well. So yeah, I love seeing yep. your face pop up on there too. Well, look, Joe, thank you so much for your time on the show. What's the best place for people to connect with you if they've loved hearing from you today? So I've done most of my thought leadership, or I don't know if it's leadership, just random rambles um, on LinkedIn because it's just got a longer platform and my ideas tend to be longer rambles. Or I have a website, joecrib.co.nz, where you can connect with me very easily in what I'm up to. If you're interested in the next National Action Plan for Community Governance, just Google that and it'll pop up and sign up if you want to for regular alerts because there's so many opportunities to stay being involved. We basically now have to get 15 actions up and running and we're going to we'd love them to be as developed again we'll use co-design so that they really hit the marks there's lots of opportunity to influence and be part of that project going forward Mm. awesome thank you joe for your time so good to have you on the show oh thanks for inviting me paul Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nā mihi mō te whakarongo.